to another episode of We The Scenario. I'm your host, Tony Siona. As always, alongside me is the incredible Miss Maggie B. Inching closer to the end of the year, but diving deeper into more issues as time keeps passing. So many questions with no real answers. As educators and mentors, the battle for our children's future is in the balance. I can say that I am eternally grateful to all of those fighting the good fight, and I'm honored to be on the front lines of what looks like a never-ending war for the soul of our communities. Today, we are honored to have a guest of such a high caliber. Representing the city of Antioch, California, born and raised in the town, aka Oakland Cali, an alumni of too many schools to mention, Kiwanis International Delta Club President, Crime Prevention Commissioner of the Antioch Police Department, and founder of Vonessa's International LLC, the multi-talented Dr. Clyde Henry Lewis Jr. Thank you so much for joining us today, Doc. I appreciate you. I don't even know if I deserve that intro. I mean, I'm a little <laughs> I'm looking for that person. <laughs> <laughs> well, brother, you you definitely earned it. And uh, as we do, as always, I'm going to get the show kicked off with Miss Maggie B. Please take the floor. Thank you. So um, welcome to, again to Dr. Clyde Lewis. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and then what inspired you to join us today on the show? Uh, well, so currently I oversee the specialty mental health programs for Alameda County uh, so that those uh, Medi-Cal uh, Medi dollars that come from the state uh, that are uh, spread around the uh, Alameda County for our kiddos uh, in schools for like special mental health programs in OUSD, for example. Um, I make sure that those programs are doing and delivering the service in a, in a way that makes sense and saying they're doing what they said they're supposed to do. I'm holding them accountable, basically. Um, so, uh, you know, as brother said, I'm originally from Oakland, California. I was, uh, I, I was Brookfield Elementary, Madison Middle, uh, and then I transferred over to Emory High School. Um, I was fortunate enough to receive a football scholarship to the University of Hawaii, where I did my undergrad and grad school. Uh, I studied ethnic studies and human development as, a, as an undergrad. My master's, I looked at how education either supports or stops us from becoming who we are. Um, you know, that identity piece. Uh, that research actually took me out to Japan, where I did some teaching, some international uh, collaboration building, program development, that types of stuff, before coming back here and finishing my doctorate in education. Um, I was recently, this past election, elected as uh, a trustee for school board area three in Antioch, in the city of Antioch. So I'm really humbled uh, and grateful to be in that position and looking forward to serving. Thank you. Awesome, congratulations on being elected. Um, that is very impressive. As I was saying before this interview got started, you have a very, very impressive resume. Um, so I guess, to take a step back, how did you decide to pursue multiple multiple higher ed degrees in education? You know, it's a funny story, and I've shared this with a, with a number of people. Um, so in in school, growing up, uh, you know, I did I did well in school, um, but I also was aware of the noise that was going on. So I convinced myself that I was something that I told was that I thought was inner city smart, um, and you know, this is. You know, this is, I won't say my age, but this is older Clyde looking back. You know, I convinced myself of this stuff that there was something like inner city smart. The kids at better schools were smarter and all these things. So then I got to undergrad and I'm sitting in class and I'm like, your thought process is no different than mine. You've been exposed to different books and you have different language to explain what it is you're talking about. But you're no smarter than the people that I were in class, that I was in class with. You are getting a master's, I'm getting a master's. You have a doctorate. I'm having a doctorate. So it's it's a little bit of that competitive spirit in me. <laughs> I don't like to lose. Uh, and I and you know, growing up, I was always told that you know OUSD is not a great institute. Uh, it's not great. Public education is not. It doesn't prepare our students. And as a product of public education, I sort of took it upon myself to say, you know what, I'm I'm going to smack that in the face. I don't believe that. Uh, and that was sort of a driving force. That and also I had mentors in middle school. I had a teacher step out and say. I believe that you can make it. It was, a, it was an African-American male mentor. I actually had a couple. Um, and not only did he say that, he challenged me in ways that made me stay true to it. Um, and, you know, with that, with those experiences it, and sort of surrounding myself, as I mentioned earlier, with good people, it's, you know, it's been, I'm not going to say it's not without headache and it's not without times where I'm like, oh my God, but, you know, those types of things help me through it. And, you know, I don't know what it is. And, you know, brother, you can, you, I'm sure you can get this. 
there's something about breathing that Oakland air that uh, <laughs> inspires you to want to keep pushing. Um, so, you know, all those things combined sort of push me to, to wanting to do uh, some of the things that we were able to accomplish. So. Nice. Yeah. I think that what you said about having internalized that message, or I feel like a lot of people do internalize that message. Like, Oh, OUSD is not a good institution. Therefore it's going to be more difficult for me. I'm not going to be as good as these other people who are pursuing these higher degrees when in fact, it doesn't have to be that way. And we all kind of, yeah, you're, we're all just as smart as each other. I like that message a lot. I feel that Mag and uh, Doc, cause I felt the same way. I, I had no clue that we can be better than our station. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, you know, that's, that's where we were when we were growing up. Like you're never going to beat the station. This is where you're at. So yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, and unfortunately I think, you know, a lot of times we have conversations with kiddos and we unintentionally reinforce some of those stereotypes. So for example, you know, I do a lot of, you know, I do a lot of public speaking and things like that. And one of the things that really uh, sort of gets under my skin, you know, when folks talk about, when, particularly to black and brown young men, uh, one of the messages, only 50% of you are going to make it out of here. You, you know, 50% are you going to be dead or in jail by, you know, whatever age, you know, some people say 21, some others say 25. Now, if we're focused on that, and again, this is a small tweak, but it's powerful. If we focus on the death rate, that sends a message and that becomes the thing that we're focused on. If we switch that and say, you know what, only 25% of you guys are going to make it to college. Which 25 are you going to be? Only 15% of you guys are going to start your own company. Which 15, you know, what 15% what are you going to be? Right? So then what, then what the conversation becomes about is success versus this, you know, you know, focus on death and pain and all that. We have a lot of that. And that's, I think that's hurting a lot of our young, young folks. So, you know, that's sort of a tweak in conversation and how we approach and, you know, how, how we engage with our young folks as well. So. I think it has a lot to do with the people that are delivering the message or giving it to, you know, students like myself at the time. Uh, I'm not going to say what year I grew up in, but, uh, you know, they already called me off of life at 18 yeah. uh, from what I did in junior high on high school. So, that was always in my mind, like, okay, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die going out as hard as I can. So it's difficult to have this conversation sometimes when you think about what these kids are going through now. How do we break that generational curse? And that, I think this this job that we do is the hardest, is harder than most jobs because we're fighting emotions, you know, we're fighting, we're fighting mind, you know, mind control, and that's the hardest thing. Well, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, like this over-reliance on TV, uh, you know, and I'm not one of those anti, so I have social media, but I also understand what social media is. Like, I, I mean, if, if you guys are connected with me on Facebook or anything like that, all I post are funny memes. I never felt, you know, you know, good day, bad day or anything like that, because people look at that and start to, if I'm a kiddo and I see this other person who's a similar age doing better than me, you know, quote unquote, better than me, that makes me feel some kind of way. If this other kiddo is experiencing things that I'm not able to experience, that makes me feel some kind of way. So now not only is I'm receiving this message, like where I come from is trash and all this stuff. Now I'm actually getting visuals to reinforce it. You know, and I don't know what the, you know, all the circumstances are for that kid's life, but all I see is the picture. And now that reinforces what I feel that, pushes me further down and does, you know, there's some psychological stuff that happens there as well. So I won't, I'll get off that soapbox, but yeah. No, it's definitely important. Um, a favorite or a quote that I really like that I think about with social media is comparison is the thief of joy. Cause there's always going to be someone that's doing better than you looking like they're doing better than you, but really what's important is focusing on what you're doing. Right. So I think it's important to talk about that. Um, so you mentioned that you had a mentor when you were in middle school, did you say? Mm -hmm. um, since we're all mentors ourselves, can you talk a little bit more about how that person kind of got through to you and what your relationship was to them and, and how they kind of sent you on a different, a different mindset or a different path? So for me, uh, you know, like a lot of kids, I grew up, you know, my mom and dad, that relationship didn't work out. My stepfather came in and as a kid, you know, growing up in, in East Oakland, you have to 
figure out this whole idea that I'm a man at the age of <laughs> two. Um, you know, a two-year-old's not necessarily making the most informed decisions. Um, and I'm exaggerating just a bit, you know, trying to be funny, but there is a lot of pressure to be an adult very young. Uh, so what ends up happening is the way you express yourself, the way you express your feelings, the way you express all these things are stunted because you need to make a decision. You need to stick with it. And that becomes who you are as a person. Um, and what would end up happening is you'd have these people come in, they'd give this powerful speech and then I'd never see them again. This person, on the other hand, I met them in seventh grade and he pulled me to the side in seventh grade. And we had a conversation a couple weeks later, he pulled me aside. It wasn't a big show. It wasn't in front of a bunch of people, you know, it happened again. And then, you know, he started to introduce me to people and he started to treat me and speak to me as if I was human, as if I mattered. For me, that was huge because now I'm like, okay, well, maybe I can let myself be vulnerable, vulnerable around this person enough to let them in to see a little bit of the real fly. And with that experience, I was able to sort of develop a bond with them. Um, and, you know, like speaking honestly, I mean, <laughs> letting people in and sort of being vulnerable those aren't necessarily things that we are taught how to do growing up in, in East Oakland, unfortunately. Even with our parents, with our friends, we got, oh, I got love for my homeboy, I kill him, you know, whatever, whatever. But they don't know the real you. They're not, you're not vulnerable for them. It's like, I go out and I squabble with anybody, I fight whatever. But they don't know the real you. That's not even who you are. But that's the way you think you're supposed to behave. They think they're supposed to behave. And then that becomes normal. So, you know, for me, you know, to your question, if I could give some advice to mentors or the thing that happened to me was that that person showed up and was consistent and they actually showed me how to be vulnerable in a safe way. Wayne is teaching me that now. Um, I'm an open book, man. I'm open. I wear my, my heart on my sleeve. So when I speak, sometimes that filter is not covered, you know, but I learned how to shed that mask a long time ago. And that's what you're talking about the mask that everybody wears. Uh, it's a hiding mechanism, you know, that I learned to hide away from your true self. So, um, yeah, I'm just speaking, just going off of what you said and really touched a nerve right there. So I had to dive in. No, <laughs> but you, you can understand what I mean. You know, and a lot of people did, you know, they're feeling that. And with this Zoom podcast that we got now, people are shedding that a little more because you're not around yeah. people in person. So uh, this is very helpful for us as well as people in your profession. Oh, thank you, man. Ms. Yeah. Maggie? Yeah, so kind of tying that in um, to my next question. So since we're all working in like a Zoom space so, or distance learning, socially distanced, um, we're, I think a lot of people on our team, the Toupee team and the Wheelo team are having a little bit more trouble than we would in person developing that rapport with students and having that consistency with them. Um, just because it's it's hard to get the students in the Zoom classroom. It's hard to make any kind of contact with them. Um, so this is a hard question, but do you have any suggestions or advice for, for anyone who's in this kind of role during this time to, to help build that rapport? So I would ask, I would ask first, um, you know, what was the relationship before the pandemic happened? Is this a new student? A lot of them are, yeah, a lot of them are new, new students, like on our caseloads, um, which makes it even tougher. Um, so, I mean, the advice and the thing that worked with, with me, like unlearn a lot of the book stuff, um, you know, you're talking to humans, you know, even, even though we're talking to a screen, you're human, you have feelings, you, you know, you have likes, you have dislikes, start a conversation with, Hey, you know what? I see, I see, I see both of you guys are wearing red. Is that a thing for the show? Then you guys dialogue. Now I jump in and have a conversation. And then I'm getting a note. See, you guys laugh, you know, you're laughing and laughing now. So just small things like that can trigger a conversation potentially. Now, I mean, obviously if a kid doesn't show up, you can't do that. Um, you know, one of the, you know, a bit of advice that I've seen that work with there is, you know, if I want to get directly to, you know, Dwayne Akins, for example, and I can't because, you know, he's a celebrity and all that stuff. I see the person who's standing next to him and I say, okay, well, what do I, what can I find out about that person? Can I get next to that person so that person can then introduce me to Dwayne? And if not that person, who's standing next to that person, right? The same thing is true with our kiddos. If we can't get directly to our kiddos, can we get to the parent? 
if they from if they from the town, I guarantee you somebody from your team knows somebody from their team. Have that conversation and introduce that way. Yeah, right. So have that conversation and be introduced that way. And then you you know when you're coming into that meeting uh, that mentor space, you're coming in sort of as like, oh yeah, this you know you vouch for basically. God, that's awesome advice. Um, so since you are described in your bio as being a really good public speaker, um, and we can tell kind of from this interview, you have a lot of charisma, you really care about what you do. Um, you mentioned earlier, you give a lot of public speaking events. Are you still doing that virtually during this time? Or is that something that you're kind of taking a break from? Well, the last couple months, I haven't simply because I was on a campaign trail. Um, but I do a lot of uh, you know, like I'll, I'll show up to schools and have conversations. I'll, you know, I'll talk to little, uh, like not little, but I'll talk to um, kiddos. You know, I'll show up in classes and, you know, do readings and things like that. But I haven't given like speeches. Uh, so, but yeah, I'm still engaged, but just not as much. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Um, did it take kind of a lot of skills development for you to become a confident public speaker? Or was that something that you always just kind of had a natural ability for? Well, you know, it's interesting you ask that. So my grandfather was, uh, he was the uh, superintendent of churches for Church and God in Christ. So as the grandkid of a pastor, you don't necessarily have a choice in terms of like being involved in the church. Um, so Easter, there were speeches. <laughs> Christmas, there were speeches. My birthday was a speech, you know, always. And I hated it. it I was embarrassed. I can never remember my lines. I hated it. But in those failures, I was able to fail forward because, you know, the first time I did it, I, I, I said like two words and the church mothers. They were like, come on, baby. Y'all know how they do. Come on, baby. You got this. That gave me a little bit more like, all right, well, maybe I'm not going to die if I don't get this right. And then I started playing sports again, tying it back to uh, failing forward. And I, I wasn't always the best, but I was the most dedicated or among the most dedicated. So now I learned how to fail. And then I understood that failure didn't necessarily mean the end, it meant growth, right? So if I, fail, if I, if I completely win all my life and I never have any of these experiences and, and never have that stuff, everybody's gonna have a bad set. Everybody's gonna have a bad presentation. And if you don't know how to bounce back from that, you know, you're gonna be stuck. So for me, I was fortunate to where I had those experiences early and I had support systems in place to be able to help me uh, stay stay the course, so. Nice, that's awesome. I see Dwayne likes that, uh, that tagline, <laughs> fail forward. <laughs> no, but, but that's really cool. I mean, yeah, because public speaking is something that I feel like a lot of people are really, really afraid of. Like people say that they would rather die than public speak, things like that. Um, but yeah, it's a really good skill to have and it's a really impressive skill to have. So that's a cool way to kind of have gotten into it, being kind of forced into it and being really nervous and scared about it, but then just getting more used to it as you kept doing it. It's cool. I mean, I think it's one of those things where I've always, and again, this, this could come from growing up in, 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 in East Oakland. If there's something that I fear, I run towards it. That's not always a great way to look at it. Um, but it's gotten me through a lot of things. Like, so there's not very much I fear. Like I'm not a tough guy. Um, you know, if somebody gets in my face and all that stuff, I'm like, hey, brother, you're right. You win. But I'm not scared. That's where the action is, up the middle. Exactly. Come on now. <laughs> I was a, I was a, I was a, uh, I was a cover two corner. <laughs> so, I, you know, I like, I like that action. So, you know, if, in sports and in, in the world, if there's something that makes me uneasy, if it makes me fearful, I run towards it. So that way I can ease my pain. Now, within reason, I'm not going to run a, run a, run up on the lion or a bear or something like that. But, you know, <laughs> if it's social, you know, so I would encourage. For, so folks that have that fear, I would encourage them. Go out and join. Um, uh, what, what's the group? Uh, there's a group where they practice public speaking. Join the debate team. Get up and give a speech in front of classes. Teachers, give, give our kiddos an opportunity to, to give presentations. Let them fail. Teach them that failure is not the, the end of the world. Teach them that, listen, if you do everything perfectly, once you're in a situation that you don't fully understand, that's gonna be more rattling. Okay, 
run into a, experience something where you don't know have all the answers and then grow from it. So that way you know sort of what to look for. I have a quick question for you. Yep. Consider the fact that you're working as a, you're working with the Antioch Police Department. How is your relationship faring considering all the situations we've been through in the course of 10 years, say? Absolutely. Um, and you know what? The first time I ever had a gun put on me was by law enforcement. I was 11 years old. The last time I had a gun put on me, I was about 23 years old. It was by law enforcement. Um, I had a gun put on my head, like a you know, gun cocked to my head from law enforcement. And I mean, y'all know, growing up in the town is, you hate cops. That's the narrative. Like, oh, you know, the police is this and that's what it is. It's, you know, whatever. They, they don't love us, we don't love them. It's they the enemy. Until I met some cops. And then I heard the other side, like, uh, I remember a conversation with a good friend of mine and he said, okay, well, imagine, I'm sorry, he said, most times when cops show up, folks are not having a great, their, their best day. So it's kind of like, you know, usually when you're having contact with folks, it's not great. I mean, they're, you know, they're upset, they're experiencing a bad day and you have to come in and do whatever you need to do. He said, now, with that mindset, now you're on height all the time. You're walking up to a car to give a traffic ticket. You don't know who's in there. You don't know if they have the pistol. You don't have it. You don't know any of this. You don't know them from Adam. So there's a fear there, right? Right or wrong or indifferent. They're human. You know, they have a fear there. So we got to having conversations about these different things like that. I'm like, wow, I never thought about that. And then I started meeting other cops. Now, some cops are jerks. You know, that's in any profession. I think... The challenge is for both sides, for those people that are like, oh, the community doesn't love us, so we're just going to treat them whatever. And that's coming from the cops. And from the community side, oh, the cops are like this, so we're, you know, we're, we're going to stand against them. At what point do we have a conversation to say, listen, we need to work together? And that's the approach I took in terms of like, um, you know, being on the, uh, the Crime Prevention Commission. So one of the programs that I developed there was essentially uh, a group um, – sort of dynamic. So we had four groups, uh, youth, 18 and under, parents, business owners, and faith-based leader, faith leaders. And the goal was to have cops come in and have conversations with them about things that affect them. Uh, so for example, you know, there's, I think there's four different types of uh, contacts that a cop does, consensual, non-consensual, detainment, and arrest. Um, and if I, as a student, I don't know that, and a cop comes and has a conversation with me, my first thing, if I, if I don't want to talk to this cop, am I stopped? Am I, I'm sorry, am I detained or am I free to go? And if I stop and I do that, if I, I'm sorry, if I know that, that can then prevent some, some of the other stuff that could happen. I, I'm starting to ramble here, so I'll, I'll slow there. But yeah. Um, but again, like if we don't teach our kiddos this, and the cops don't know that the kiddos don't know this. And I'm not taking blame from either side. Right. At what point do we have conversations to say, listen, when I come and approach you, this is what I'm doing. And then the kiddo have a chance to say, listen, when you come and approach me, this is how that makes me feel. For my community, if somebody comes and approaches me like this, this is the response that I've been trained to give. Right? If we're not having that conversation, you know, we're, you know, we're going to be button heads 50 years from now, 100 years from now. So. In, in, my, in my belief, I think they just need to go through more training, uh, to be honest. I've learned that it takes longer for somebody to become a stylist or a salon manager than it does to become a police officer. Yeah, they, they need more time to... And then we get a lot of these cops that come from out of town into certain communities. They don't even know the community. Yep. So you're coming in with your whatever you came with and you're bringing and putting it on the community. You don't know what's going on here. So... Yeah. How do you, what kind of conversations are being had now, you know, about that and how to get them more training? And have you heard anything that's going on that could be helpful for our community? Well, it, but again, it, it comes the same way because you can have somebody from Oakland and grew up in the hills and don't know what about the flatlands. You can, you can have somebody that grew up in the flatlands and stay in the house all the time. So just because you come from the same area don't mean you understand the environment. So it's important, regardless of who it, who's coming in, it's important that they take the effort or the, the leadership. It starts with the leadership. If the leadership takes the effort to say, listen, 
It's important for us to not go out there and bust heads and all that stuff. It's important for us to go in and dialogue with the, with the community. So that way we can have some, you know, some healthy conversations because the there's some learning that needs to happen on the community. Absolutely, I agree with you, the police need some training, but there's also some learning the community needs to do as well. There's some growth that we need to do there. So, you know, and I know that's an unpopular opinion, but you know, it's, you know. It's a real opinion and I, I right. <laughs> I mean, I, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So since you mentioned at the beginning of this interview um, that you do a lot of work with like mental health organizations or mental health in Alameda County. Um, so something that's being talked about with um, kind of police reform and everything of that nature right now is um, having more focus on mental health and having mental health responders respond to mental health calls rather than um, police officers. So kind of, can you talk about that idea in conjunction with your role as the crime prevention commissioner? Oh, oh okay. As a, for my work role, I mean, that's a little bit of a, a sort of a landmine, but as speaking as a crime prevention commissioner, um, you know, I think that there is more thought that needs to be put into that because if anybody's been in a situation where um, somebody's having a mental health uh, episode, it can go from non-combative, non-violent to violent in a matter of seconds. So if, you, if you're saying, okay, well, this person's obviously having, they maybe need to take their meds or whatever it is, and you make the phone call to uh, a social worker, we can assume in a, in, a, in a best case scenario that social worker will take between three and five minutes to get to the scene. In that three and five minutes, it can escalate to something else. So now that three and five minutes is now seven to 10 minutes. And if anybody's been in a situation, seven to 10 minutes, that's you know 10 lifetimes. So it, it, I think that we need to do a little bit more uh, sort of thoughtful conversation uh, around what that looks like. Maybe, you know, maybe to the brother's point earlier, maybe, maybe we require cops to have a little bit more training in terms of mental health. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that's, I think that one is going to require a lot more intentional conversation to come to a, um, you know, a solid solution. You know, a similar conversation has happened in particularly in schools. Um, you know, there's a push to say, okay, we, we don't want uh, school resource officers, we want counselors. And, you know, I, on the surface, that sounds great because counselors serve a, a major role. And I'm, you know, I'm a fan of counselors, guidance counselors in, in the bit. But on the flip side, you know, the conversation in terms of like mending that bridge, I think that SROs could serve a, a very key, key relationship point uh, for that to happen. Uh, and what I mean by that we don't need an SRO on campus looking to arrest folks. We don't need an SRO on campus looking to, you know, put people in jail. If there was an SRO who had some of those counselor-like skills, some of those mentoring skills, some of those coaching skills, they can then bridge the gap. Because now you can sort of, anybody that's been in schools that know, you know before something's going to happen, especially if it's a big thing you know hours before and if, if there are teachers on campus who know and can get involved. Now, imagine if we had an SRO on campus who can say, yeah, this is probably gonna split, spill out in the street so we're gonna nip this in a bud at lunchtime instead of after school. We're not gonna get law enforcement involved. And if they do come, come that SRO can then beat a bridge and be like, no, nah, no, nah, I got this. A teacher wouldn't have that ability. A counselor wouldn't have that ability. But a law enforcement officer who's trained to talk to both sides would be more able to do that. So. You know, again, these are more nuanced conversations that, that people need to have and spend a little bit more time having the hard conversations, the uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because it is, these are delicate situations, right? Like how we were talking about social workers can take three to five minutes or maybe seven to 10 minutes to get on the scene, which doesn't seem like much, but depending on the situation that can be life or death or injury versus not injury. So yeah, I think I, I agree that they are kind of more delicate conversations than, than people treat them as, so. Yeah, definitely complex issues. Um, kind of taking a step back, I should have asked you this maybe before we started this conversation, but can you talk a little bit more about what your role exactly entails as crime prevention commissioner um, at the Antioch Police Department? So the, the crime, preventioner, uh, crime prevention commissioner essentially is we engage with the public, we hold monthly meetings uh, where we have conversations and we hear public comments 
And then in addition to that, we have, uh, we lead um, neighborhood watches. So I, for me, I have, I think two or three neighborhood watch groups. So I go, I engage with the community and I ask, you know, what, what are some issues that happen? I remember one group that I was uh, working with, they had a lot of, you know, there were a couple drug houses, like, you know, drug use houses, not drug dealing houses, but drug use houses. There were a lot of abandoned vehicles. There were a lot of, you know, stuff like that. Like, you know, um, the, the, the area wasn't taken care of. So we coordinated some neighborhood watches. I'm sorry, not neighborhood watches, but neighborhood cleanups. Um, and we, we work with the community to get the cars removed. Now, some of them, they're in people's yards and that's fine. But they couldn't be on, you know, by law, you can't have a car parked on the street for, you know, three years or something like that. So we work with the community to identify what problems they are, and then we work with them to solve them. I, as a commissioner, don't get involved. That's not my role. What my role is to say, okay, well, these are your challenges. These are the services in the community that are available to support those services, and this is who you should contact. So we're just like a, a connector between uh, the public and public service. Got it, got it. Yeah, that is an interesting role. And it seems like you're very interested in public service since um, you just ran for it and won the role of trustee for the Antioch School District. So again, congratulations on that. Um, can you talk about what drove you to, to run for this position and kind of how it was campaigning, especially during this time in the pandemic and all the craziness well, in 2020? It's, it's never easy, but this is my second run. The first time I ran in 2018 and I wasn't successful. Uh, but the first time I ran, uh, as a relative unknown, I, you know, I, I had done things in Antioch, but not, I wasn't as, you know, sort of connected as I am now. Um, and one of the first things that happened, I have a LinkedIn account. I'm sure a lot of you do. And I had private investigators looking at my LinkedIn account. I had people calling my, uh, calling people that I knew, checking to see if what I was saying was true. Um, you know, I, I, I don't make stuff. I mean, I am who I am. Uh, you know, I'm popular with some, not not so much with others, and that's fine. Um, so that was, you know, that's a little unnerving <laughs> to think you're always under the microscope, whether it's true or not now. But you know, at the beginning it was. So I'm I'm assuming that that that's true. So who you talk to, how you have conversations, all of that stuff, stressful. Um, and then campaigning this time was a little more difficult because. You can't just go to, to people's door because people may say, oh, well, you know, you're coming to my door and you're supposed to be in COVID. Oh, I'm not voting for you. So you have to be very careful around that. Um, getting signs out, holding events and all that stuff. It's, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah, it was a challenge. I think, I see there's a question uh, about the past election. I, you know, I, I don't really focus so much on the national scene. Um, I'm more interested in local politics because, you know, I think if we spend time, spend all of our time looking at the, the federal stuff, which is important, we may lose sight uh, of our local politics. Like who we have as mayor is important because they are interpreting the laws as written by the federal government for our community. And then if we're not looking at our city count, uh, our city officials to say, okay, well, how are you making the best decisions? What, what are you using to make the best decisions for our community? If we're not doing that and we're only, oh, you know, Joe Biden won, oh, Trump won, we're, we're missing the boat and we're going to end up losing out. So federal election, yes, that's great. But equally, if not more important, is the local election. So I would encourage everybody to know who it is you're voting for. Because it's easy to say, you know what? Hey, listen, I got a beard. I'm nice. Look, I'm from the town. Oh, I live here, too. But as we were talking about earlier, is that person showing up on Monday morning, getting their nails dirty, you know, doing the work that needs to be done? Nice. Yeah, I like that answer. I think they're, well, I'm not sure as far as a national level, but there seems to be more of a, a focus on, on local elections after this, this past election. So I think that's a good thing and definitely agree. It's really important. Um, so kind of piggybacking off that. Um, since this year has been so crazy, everything that's been going on, the pandemic, um, all the police brutality that's been happening, 
protests, all the different movements rising up, Black Lives Matter, um, to fund the police, things of that nature. How are you personally taking care of yourself during this time? What are the self-care things you do to kind of stay sane during this insane year? Um, I exercise a lot. Uh, well, I recently started exercising a lot because in grad school, yeah, I didn't have time. Um, and I spent a lot of time with my, my daughter and my son and my wife. Um, and I have, you know, some wonderful frat brothers that I, you know, I meet up with and have conversations with. I mean, because in times like these, it's important to surround yourself by people who, even if they're going through something, they can be there for you. Um, you know, I can be there for them, they can be there for me. And we sort of create this environment where, you know, we let each other know it's going to be okay. Uh, and looking at my son and looking at the hope in his eyes and my daughter and sort of her drive and spirit, you know, those things keep me grounded. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, just surrounding myself with good people and, and sort of trying to find, find the good in things. So. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, find the good in things is something I also try. Um, it really depends on the day how easy or difficult that is. But I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think it's a good goal to have. Um, and my last question is, what advice do you have for any young people um, that might be listening to the show, any youth in OUSD or just in the community who might be struggling during this time to find that motivation or find anything good to work towards? Okay, so one of the conversations that I have, um, so, you know, I speak at pub high schools a lot. And one of the conversations I have, I ask the audience, who am, you know, who am I? Who do you think I am? You know, and before, you know, before leading up to the presentation, I, I, I asked the uh, teacher and people not to tell the kids, kiddos anything about me. And what I'm doing is I'm asking them to look at my external shell and make assumptions about who they think I am. And all of us, you know, to the point earlier, all of us are wearing a mask, all of us are wearing shells, all of us are doing this stuff we're presenting to the world, but that may not be truly who I, who that person is. So we have conversations about that. So the advice that I would give young folks listening is right now is a perfect opportunity and you may never get this in your lifetime. Some people never have an opportunity to find out who you really are, right? Spend some time with yourself, right? You can't spend, you can't, you can't hang out in the mall. You can't do all that stuff. Go take a walk in the park and ask you, I mean, it sounds kind of corny, but it's true. Like, who are you? Aside from the cars and the clothes and the grades and the, you know, all that sport, whatever it is, aside from who are you? Get in touch with who you are. And then what are some of your goals? And then, then, it, then comes the hard part. How do you identify people that are in line with your goals? And if those people around you that are not in line with your goals, how do you sort of get them moving towards their goals? So you are at least moving towards your goals. And then how do you have conversations to identify mentors and things like that? Because we all need them. Um, and right now is a great opportunity for that because people are sitting at home. Find a professor that studies something that you're interested in and email them. They'll get back to you. I got one question for you, man. What happened to your football career, brother? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to let you go without hearing about that. I need to hear what's going on, man. <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. Um, so uh, my junior year in high school, my best friend was shot and killed. And is it, if anybody's gone through that, I mean, I... You know, hopefully not, um, but you know, psychologically that that does something to you. Um, and coming from, coming from East Oakland, we don't talk to counselors. We don't talk to teachers. We don't talk to our parents. We just absorb, especially as men, we just hold on to it. So I was fortunate enough to receive a football scholarship, but when I got there, I still had that town mentality of I'm holding everything in. And that's a lot of pressure to hold on to. I wasn't focused. I was interested in football and women and not in that order. <laughs> That's just me being honest. And as a result, I lost my focus and I, and I wasn't as dedicated to football as I could have been. Had I been more dedicated to football, I mean, it, who knows what could happen. Well, you probably wouldn't have all the accolades you have now because it looks like you went to 10 different colleges. Uh, <laughs> and I, I was under the assumption that it's four years for every college. So, man. No, 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 no. I just want to give nah, you respect. Nah, nah. I just want to show you some respect in, in what you do. And uh, after reading, you know, your entire, I went through your entire situation. 
I went to the AUSD uh, thing, you know, the Antioch School Board thing, read up, and I was like, wow, man, you you have dug deep, and I'm glad to be a part of it, man. If we can, uh, after this, I would love to make sure that we stay in contact with you, because what you're well, doing absolutely. out there. Absolutely. I'm, I'm open book. Um, I'm open book. I'm, I'm, I, love, I love Oakland. I love Antioch. You know, I love people, um, and if, you know, if there's things that I can do to support, and I have, and I have time, um, you know, I'll be there, uh, um, you know, because people did it for me. And so I'll leave with this. So uh, when I, I lived in Japan for about, uh, you know, a little over a half decade, I was doing well in all these things. And this is how strong the love for Oakland is, or the Bay Area is. I'm doing well, I didn't have any bills, traveling, I'm doing all this stuff, living a life, I'm single. I felt guilty because of the stuff that I was experiencing and the stuff that was available to me, there were a ton of kids at home who didn't have that opportunity. And it, without the support of somebody like me coming back, I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm not saying I'm the man and I'm going, I'm not pie pipe. I'm not saying that at all. But what I could do is come back and have conversations with kiddos. And I felt I was helping kids who no matter what they were going to be successful. And I felt like I was leaving behind those kids who really needed me. Mm, mm. So that's kind of what pulled me, one of the things that pulled me back to, to California. Um, so having said that, I am all for the kiddos. We appreciate you, brother. Anybody else? I know Dwayne. I can see Dwayne's mind running right now. Brother, you got any questions for Doc? Dwayne sent me a question. Um, so Dwayne wants to know, um, how did you prepare to mentally to write your dissertation and what subject did you focus on? Um, Dwayne needs advice because he has until um, December 8th to finish his. Finish your dissertation? Oh. You're, You're on, on mute, mute Dwayne. <laughs> Not to finish, I go back on 12-8, I start, I got five classes, one research class, and then four dissertation workshops. So. Okay. Got it, my bad. So he goes back on 12, or December 8th, and he needs advice for kind of how you went through that process. So for me, my whole career, I studied, or my whole education, I studied myself. As an undergrad, um, I kind of fell into ethnic studies because I was, my first semester, I was on academic probation. My coach pulled me aside and said, Clyde, take this class, and it was a class in ethnic identity. And in that class, it put language to a lot of the stuff that I was experiencing. I, I'm a nerd. I've been a nerd my whole life. But I grew up in an environment where nerds, that's food. So I'm not going to, you know, I, I have to survive. So I have to, you know, I have to show outside, you know, who I am. So as an undergrad, I studied that. And then I worked in a city in, uh, in, in Hawaii. It's called uh, Waipahu. It's largely Samoan and Filipino. Low income, it, it was, it's a lot like Oakland. A lot of the stuff that's going on there is similar to the stuff that's going on in Oakland. And then, so there was this one young lady, she was mean. She would fight, she would cuss you out, throw chairs, all this stuff. They put her in special ed. We worked with this young lady and found out that she was Samoan. Her, she was the oldest. Her dad had lost his job. Her mom didn't work. And she was expected to carry the weight of the household at 17. So of course she's gonna act out, right? That's, that's a lot of pressure. To, she, I think she had six, six siblings. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big family, right? There's a lot of pressure. The school system put her in special ed without understanding what it was that she really needed. So for my master's, what I looked at is how education helps us or stops us from becoming who we, who we are going to be. And then for my dissertation, I'm the first, not only in my house, but in my community to go to college. So when we talk about, you know, college and all these things, and we're having conversations, kiddos, you should go to college. You might as well be saying, oh, you should go to the moon because I have never been there. I don't know what a college campus looked like. I don't know how to behave on a college campus. I don't know none of that, or I didn't, right? So what I studied for my, my dissertation was those kids who made it to college and made it to the doctorate, who were the first in their family to go to college. What, who are they? What are some of the challenges they had and how do they overcome those challenges? Now, and I, did, I, didn't, I didn't separate it by color or gender, I did everybody throughout the state of California. It, well, it's in the CSU, the California State University, right? So now what I can do is I can use that information to go back and say, eighth grade, for example, kids have a lot of challenges. So let's do this, this let's build this kind of program. 
fourth grade, they have this kind of problem. Let's build this kind of stuff. So now we're reaching more students and more students can be successful. So I said all that to say, for me, it was more about figuring out what it is that I, the work that I wanted to do when I was done and how my dissertation would help me do that. Does that make sense? Nice, thank you for speaking on that. Um, does anyone else have any final questions for Dr. Lewis, John or Stacy? Man, I just wanna know since you from, I didn't know you, I came late. I didn't know you was from Oakland. Can you, I'm also born and raised in Oakland and I played football mm -hmm. too. And I stopped in college just cause it got real political. Um, yep, that <laughs> yeah, so, but I ended up finishing at Xavier recently, and right now I'm trying to, I'm trying to alleviate all this doubt I'm having in terms of getting into grad school in terms of am I prepared, because I'm looking at the obstacles I got to overcome that, you know, for me, I'm, nobody's done what I'm doing in my family, so I'm kind of just on my own, so what would you tell an aspiring Black male from Oakland? who wants to go to grad school so that we could be like you and get them degrees. Well, I mean, I would, I would, first I would encourage you to be like you cause I got troubles. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would, there's a, there's a number of different things. Uh, you know, you ever heard that saying misery loves company? Yeah. The opposite is also true. Joy loves company. So being around people who may not, even people that may not have achieved what you, you want to achieve, but find joy in your happiness, those are the people who deserve your time. So that's one. Okay. Two, find someone who you can have honest conversations with. I mean, because, you know, we're in a setting right now. This is our first time meeting. It's all formal and all that stuff. But guess what? There's going to be nights in grad school because you're going. I'm, you don't have a choice now. You're on my radar. You're going. There's going to be nights when you're in grad school. and You're like, man, screw this. I'm done. I can't talk to my family because I don't have time. My girl tripping because I can't spend all the time with her, but you got to stick with it. It's a couple years. Grad school, just like undergrad, is a challenge. Is going to challenge you in new ways. But if you're surrounded with people who are going to keep you motivated, you will be successful. That's the first piece. Second piece, if you focus on the obstacles, what, what, what position you play in football? I was a I was a cornerback. I went to Oregon State, and then I left. Okay, I'm fellow fellow DB. Um, so, what would you do if 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 the receiver you're facing at USC was bigger, faster, stronger? How would you respond? Would you give up? No, you just <laughs> you got to buckle down. Put <laughs> that tail come out the backfield and run you over the first play of the game and get a touchdown. You gonna stop and cry on the sideline? Oh no, no, Why? you can't. Do that. But it's hard. It's hard. But, yeah. It's hard for me. See, your analogy makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, I've, I've experienced that. Like I've been in moments where I've had some embarrassing plays on the field. But, you know, when you were a starter and you on the field, like I remember I was I never wanted to get smacked. Like I would see highlights of people get smacked and people get made fun of it. it, it I was like, I'm never going to put myself in that position. But it's like when you play the game, you're going to get hit. People are going to catch you slipping. But that's just part of the game. And it's like people, I see NFL players get smacked every day on Sunday and they just get up and keep going. So I'm like, it's, I was like, it was nothing to really, you just got to come back and be better. Cause I see them bounce back too. So if you got the resilience to bounce back from getting run over, then I think that's the bigger takeaway. Next play, man. Oh, go ahead, brother. I couldn't, we couldn't hear you, brother. Next play mentality. Yeah. And the same thing is true of education. The same thing is true once you finish. The same thing is true of relationships. All of that stuff is tied together. You're going to face obstacles, and it's up to you whether you want to push through or not. My, my man played fullback. If his line wasn't blocking, it was harder for him to get through. But that didn't say, yeah, well, I'm going to give up. They got a big D line, and our line ain't blocking, so I'm going to stop. Push through. Right? Now you go to your coach, that's your mentor, you know, the people that you surround yourself and be like, listen, this is what I see happening. This is the challenge that I see. And then they, because they've been on the other side and they're looking too, they can then support you with some, some, some information to help make that 
uh, success a little easier. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely, definitely. That really, that's all I got. Honestly, yeah, Dwayne is that is that mentor for me right now. Dwayne and Tony, pretty much everybody I work with, those are that's my support. But I was like, yeah, I was really struggling. It's like when when you got people that's doing what you're trying to do, it's like, oh, like you know, that's your support. But it's like when when nobody can really give you advice on something, you just kind of feel lost in the sauce. So it was great hearing. It was really great hearing that that advice. Absolutely, absolutely. And reach out, uh, brother Aikens. He, brother Aikens, want to get in contact with me. Oh yeah, please drop the email, Dwayne. That's my friend, brother. Oh man. <laughs> Hold on, you went to Xavier too? Nah, I didn't go to Xavier. Oh. Um, you know, we we both members of that Alpha Phi Alpha. Oh lord. <laughs> <laughs> I helped. I helped initiate him. Yes, yes. I joined in grad chapter. I didn't. They didn't have it in uh, Hawaii, so I joined grad chapter. Can imagine what y'all had to go through to join these uh, fraternities. You know what? Just, it's a bunch of hugs. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I heard, but I understand. <laughs> Alpha Phi Alpha is a non-hazing organization. Exactly. And if you haze, you will get kicked out. And if you allow somebody to haze you, you will never make it. Yes. Oh, Miss Maggie? <laughs> I sound like I'm out five material. Yeah. We ain't with huh? that. No, I was just saying, yeah, I was like the whole hazing thing. I'm like, that's, they don't do that no more. But yeah, like he said, you will, <laughs> you will get, your chapter will get suspended <laughs> the moment that comes up. So, yeah, they don't do that no more. Well, I mean, does anyone else have any questions? That was an awesome, awesome tangent that we just went on. I loved that. Does anyone else have any other questions? All right, Tony, you want to wrap it up? Yes, uh, Dr. Clive, I, I can't thank you enough, man, for sharing this space and time with us. Uh, this second season has just been amazing with the guests we have. And with you being with us, it's just stepped it up another notch. So each time we do this, it's going to have to get tougher and tougher for us because they're coming in with, with better and better and better each time. So at this moment, we always give our guests at least a 30-second spot to let people know where they can find you, how they can get in contact with you, and uh, here's your chance. The floor is yours, brother. So first of all, I thank all of you for uh, for having me. Um, you know, I've volunteered with Brother Aikens over at uh, Wheelo uh, for a, a couple different times. So, you know, it's always an honor to serve. Um in a mentorship capacity and just coming over and offering support. So I'm always happy to do that. Uh, so you can, so you can email, well, is this for the public or is this just for this group? Oh yeah, this is going out to the public, good brother. Gotcha. Okay. So you can find me, <laughs> you can look at, um, so my, my campaign web page is still up cause I was going to get my personal stuff and you know, to the public now. Um, I love the public, but you know, that's a lot of phone calls. Um, so uh, you can look at my website. Uh, it's www.clydeforausd.com. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Clyde Lewis, uh, Ed D. Uh, and, you know, if you, we can connect on LinkedIn, we can connect on Facebook, reach out, and I'm happy to have conversations and we can go from there. Thank you again, brother. I know your time is precious. So, uh, you know, like I said, we want to thank you for joining us. To everyone else involved with the show, the work is impeccable and greatly appreciated. To all of our guests, thank you for joining us. And again, this week, you can follow us on Instagram at We The Scenario Podcast. We lead ours, mentoring on the fly. Also, you can find us and all of our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Once again, this is We The Scenario. I'm your host, Tony Siona, alongside the incomparable Miss Maggie B. We will see y'all next week. We out. All right.